Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. That as Elder Skibbenes said, your name endures forever. Your word also endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. And more so now, we cling to it. We anchor our souls into it. That even as many have fallen away, even as many have tossed the word of God out the window and think it's no longer relevant to our lives, even more so we cling to it and we dig our heels in and we anchor our souls to it because we know in the word of God is life and strength and power because it is breathed out by God himself. Lord, it reveals to us truths, truths about who you are, truths about who we are, and truths about how we can be reconciled to you and how we relate to the world around us. Anything we need to know to live this life, we can find in your word, and we're grateful for that treasure. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1999, a professor of psychology named Matthew S. McClone published a study while he was an assistant professor at Lafayette College. Anybody heard of that? Right over here, in, uh, right across the bridge here in Easton, Pennsylvania. The study was entitled, The Keats Heuristic, Rhyme as Reason and Aphorism Interpretation. Everybody gets that, right? It's really just a bunch of big words to describe how much a phrase that rhymes appears more true than a phrase that doesn't rhyme. For instance, in one example, McClone found that those who were part of the study determined the phrase, woes unite foes, was true in more cases than the phrase, woes unite enemies, even though they mean the exact same thing, only one rhymes. I'm assuming that the phrase, haste makes waste, was found more times to be true than use your brain and think. An apple a day keeps the doctor away was found to be truer more times than stop eating junk food. And you snooze, you lose was found to be truer than don't be a lazy bum. Instead of all those big words, the title of the study should have been something seems more trustworthy if it sounds like it was written by Dr. Seuss. In an article referencing that study, the author wrote about how rhyming phrases appear more true than phrases that require us to use our brains slightly more. And I quote, this tendency can be undone if you simply point it out to people. But otherwise, these forces operate below conscious awareness and we can be duped by how easy something is to believe or retrieve in our minds. And then the author wrote, our penchant for fluency makes us susceptible to nonsense. If it feels right, it is right. That article in the study it referenced seems like a page taken straight out of 2022, doesn't it? If it feels right, it is right. 
In our passage this morning, the entire religious system of those who Jesus is talking with, the Pharisees, is based on what they think makes sense and feels right, when the reality of everything in the spiritual and physical realms was completely different. See, the Pharisees' whole religious system that they pushed on their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters and had been the prevailing way of thought for a long time by this point was this. Focus on the law and the rules. Do as good of a job obeying the rules, and then you are counted as righteous and able to enter heaven. This extreme legalism was what had precipitated this whole conversation with Jesus in the first place, following Jesus' healing of the man who couldn't walk on a Sabbath day. Especially according to the Pharisees' extra man-made tacked-on rules to the original Jewish law, Jesus had broken the rule that said to not exert even the teensiest amount of effort by healing this man. The Pharisees then confront and verbally attack Jesus about that, and that's what leads Jesus to break down their entire system of what one could do to be righteous enough to have eternal life. We covered the first half of that last week. First of all, Jesus established to the Pharisees that it was he, not they, who was in charge of all things religious. For it was he, not they, who was also God. We covered Jesus as the Son of God and how he relates to God the Father within the Trinity last week. In a nutshell, the Son of God is equal in essence, being, nature, and power to God the Father. The only difference is that Jesus, out of perfect love, submits himself in authority to the Father. It's God the Father who calls the shots in the universe and who holds the perfect plan, and Jesus only does what the Father reveals to him to do. In an illustration readily understood in Jesus' day, the father of a family held the complete authority in that family. The son learned the father's occupation and never tried to usurp the father's authority out of love for his father. This is why the terms father and son are used of two of the members of the Trinity, not to describe any sort of origin for the son, since we know the Bible tells us the son has always existed with God the Father. But these terms are used to describe their relationship and their positions in relation to one another within the Trinity. Jesus as God needed to be the very first truth that needed to be established in the Pharisees' minds, for everything else is based and founded upon that truth. While most of the Pharisees would still never understand and constantly be seeking to kill Jesus instead, the truth of Jesus as God needed to be established first in dismantling their entire man-made system of righteousness. Jesus as God needed to be first established because the reality of everything is that no one can ever come close to being righteous on their own, no matter how well they follow all the rules. All of us suffer from a sin problem. We can't overcome it. We can't earn our way out of it or do enough good things to make up for already breaking God's standards. And the just payment for our sinful state 
is death. Both deaths as described in the Bible. Physical death, which we all will still pay, and the second death, or eternal banishment from God's presence and all that he is. Our only hope is to have someone who is sinless themselves to pay that penalty as a substitute on our behalf. The only being who is sinless is God. Enter Jesus as God being the established foundation. Instead of trying to do things ourselves to work our way into heaven, as was the foundation of the Pharisees' legalistic system, we have to start with Jesus. We have to. Cannot start with ourselves. We have to start with Jesus. And once we take Jesus' death and resurrection for our own, on our behalf, we have to completely get rid of any notion we can change anything about our sinful state ourselves. All we can do is repent of our sinful state and ask God to forgive us. The Bible promises that God will do just that and make us righteous himself only by looking at Jesus' righteousness covering us. Not any kind of personally perceived righteousness. That and only that is the only way to God. That and only that is the only way to God. And therefore, his heaven. Like we talked about last week, Jesus made the point blank statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no matter how good their intentions are, can come to the Father except through me. There's no other way. Everyone who does this, who comes before God, admitting their sinful state separates them from him as most holy God, and there's nothing they can do about it, no amount of prayer said, no amount of penance done, and no number of good deeds, and repent or turn from wanting to follow their sin and take Jesus' death and resurrection for having paid for their sin, thus making him their savior and king is seen as righteous in God's eyes. That's it. It has nothing to do with what we can do and everything to do with what Jesus has already done for us. That theological truth that only when we repent and make Jesus our Savior and King are we seen as righteous in God's eyes is crucial to what we're covering this morning. To start off this morning's passage, I first want to start off with the last verse we covered last week. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 5. We're actually starting uh, with the last verse we ended with last week, verse 18, because this builds, uh, we'll be building on this verse this morning again. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to John chapter 5, verse 18, or look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. We read this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. It's the belief in Jesus and all he claimed to be 
And all he said was the truth to reconciliation with God that is the basis for eternal life. The Pharisees had it all wrong because instead of believing Jesus and therefore believing Jesus' purpose, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him to shut up. So what follows is Jesus' truth-filled warning to the Pharisees if they continue in their unbelief, as well as to anyone else back in Jesus' day, and now if they continue in their unbelief. Jesus already established in verses 22 through 23 that he is the one whom God the Father has established as the one judging people when all is said and done. So the one who died and rose again to offer salvation to those who will believe and take it for themselves will be the same exact one who will judge, sending those who took him to heaven and those who refused to, to hell. Jesus elaborates on that difficult truth next. Verse 25, we're picking up uh, with where we left off last week. Truly, truly, I say to you, An hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus is the source of all life. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, the Apostle John has already divulged this about Jesus. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word, or Jesus, gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Jesus is the author and source of physical life, and in the case of humanity, spiritual life. For Jesus is the author of the human soul. So in this passage, we shouldn't be surprised then to see that Jesus is the source of and has the authority over both physical life and spiritual life. Verse 25 covers every aspect of this source and authority over physical and spiritual life. Like I referenced last week, the Gospel of John is the only one out of the four Gospels that recounts Jesus physically calling a dead man out of the grave he had laid in for four days. That's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. In that way, that's a literal and physical fulfillment of exactly what verse 25 says. But like I said, Jesus is also the source and authority over spiritual life and the human soul. So verse 25 can also be understood in a metaphorical way as well. Those dead in their sins with only hell to look forward to will hear the voice of the Son of God and be risen to new spiritual life. And like we started talking about last week, this metaphorical and spiritual resurrection now, when we repent and place our faith in Jesus for our salvation from our sin, then leads to an actual physical resurrection. That actual physical future resurrection is also part of verse 25. Like I said, verse 25 covers every single aspect that there could be of death, resurrection and life, both spiritual and physical. 
Verse 26 is once again dismantling the Pharisees' entire system of how one could be righteous. Verse 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. One had to get rid of any idea of deriving spiritual life out of simply following the Jewish law, which is what the Pharisees fiercely held on to. The Jewish law was given by God the Father as a way to live a life pleasing to God, but it was always supposed to be a byproduct of one's love and faith in God, not the other way around. But the Pharisees had turned it into that other way around. So Jesus was turning their focus back to the author of the law and not the law itself. God is the one who gives life, not just humanity following rules. And towards the Pharisees, Jesus reiterates that God the Father has given him that same authority to give life, and again, not the law. The Apostle Paul notes this very same truth when he says, And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. What the Pharisees thought was their only hope of salvation, their own legalistic following of the law of Moses, was in fact powerless like we just read. It is only through the life-giving of the source of life, Jesus, that there is hope of new life, both spiritual in the here and now and physical in the future. The Pharisees thought they could judge Jesus by the powerless Mosaic law, but in reality, Jesus is the one who will judge them. Verse 26 again, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This verse may sound familiar because we already read a very similar sounding verse last week in verse 22. But Jesus makes one important distinction here in verse 27 than he does in verse 22. How does Jesus refer, refer to himself in verse 27? All the rest of this time, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of God. In verse 27, especially in the judgment of humanity, he refers to himself as the what? Son of Man. This is in direct fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet Daniel's prophecy of end times when he said as my vision continued that night I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient one or God the father and was led into his presence he was given authority honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world including each and every individual in all of those nations 
of the world. Here's what Jesus will, will fulfill since he's been given all authority of every single person in the history of the world. Because Jesus will judge both as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he will judge justly and perfectly as verse 30 describes. Jump ahead with me to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus will judge perfectly according to God the Father's will, and as having been 100% man, in addition to 100% God, he will be perfectly fair to we as humans. Now what sets up for this end times judgment, verses 28 through 29? Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. As noted by one biblical scholar, these two verses are only one of the few times that John's gospel deals with end times theology. Let's deal with this first in the immediate context of this conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees. This concept of physical resurrection of the dead at the end was nothing new to Judaism or the Pharisees. Daniel 12:2, in talking about the end times, prophesies, Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. This is the verse that Jesus is referencing here. But what, it, what very important distinction is Jesus making about Daniel's prophecy? He's saying, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Well, whose voice? His voice. The one who's speaking, the Son of God and the Son of Man's voice. He will resurrect everyone who had ever lived and call them to judgment. No one will escape. This is a clear warning to any of the Pharisees who cared enough about trying to understand what Jesus was saying to them. The very one, get this, the very one they were judging for so-called breaking their man-made and tacked-on rules to the Jewish law will be the one who will judge them for breaking God's actual standards. Now, before we go any further, you might have read this and said, whoa, 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 hold, hold on here. I'm confused. I thought the Bible taught that it isn't by good deeds or by evil deeds we would be judged, but based on whether or not we accepted Jesus' death and resurrection for ourselves and repented, or rejected Jesus and never repented. This reference to good deeds and evil deeds is in connection to what is manifested in one's life, what is seen, what is shown, what is proven. A life continually ruled by sinfulness and never surrendering to Jesus' transformation will be marked by evil deeds. What are evil deeds? Are we just talking about murder 
and other obviously evil acts? No, for the root of evil is sinfulness, selfishness, and pride. And the ultimate act of sinfulness, selfishness, and pride is the rejection of Jesus as Savior and King. And as we already discussed, the Bible says that God only sees us as righteous if we accept Jesus as Savior and King. So if one just keeps rejecting surrender to Jesus, their life will ultimately be marked by evil deeds. On the flip side, if one repents and surrenders their life to Jesus as Savior and King, then God sees them as righteous. And the Holy Spirit starts transforming that life to be made more and more in line each day with how Jesus wants them to live. That life is then marked by good deeds, not in and of themselves, but because of God's work in them through the Holy Spirit. This is another aspect of that spiritual resurrection that the Holy Spirit gives us when we surrender our souls to Jesus and seek to please him out of love for him. This presence of a spiritual resurrection in contrast with the absence of a spiritual resurrection then directly connects to the physical resurrection of both. As Jesus was merely referencing and making the connection between himself and Daniel's prophecy in chapter 12, verse 2, we shouldn't rip this out of the context of the whole rest of the Bible, especially in what is revealed elsewhere in the New Testament about these judgments. As Jesus is referencing Daniel 12, 2, which condenses these judgments, what Jesus is doing is also condensing what, we, what will be revealed about these future resurrections. What I mean by that is this. Jesus here in our passage this morning is condensing the timing of these resurrections into seemingly one event. But the timing of these resurrections from the rest of scripture will actually be spaced out some. To help us better understand this concept, it's almost like I made the statement, I went to the store and came home. This is the most condensed version of that whole experience that I could possibly come up with. And it makes it seem like it was a quick succession of events, right? In the course of that experience, however, it was I left my house, drove down the street, almost got into an accident because this guy cut me off out of nowhere, finally made it to the store after waiting in traffic for a while, bought a loaf of bread, went to check out, and got stuck behind someone who insisted on paying with exact change and could not find that last penny they were sure they had, finally checked out. Walked through the parking lot, loaded up the groceries, got in my car, started to drive home, but realized I needed to get some gas. Felt like I had to give up my firstborn child to pay for said gas, and then arrived home. There's a big difference between those two statements, isn't there? But at the same time, both statements are equally true. It's just the one was way more condensed than the other. And there was a lot less complaining in the first one, too. In the New Testament, there's actually a lot more that happens in terms of the timing of these resurrections. Let's start 
with the resurrection of the person who surrendered their life to Jesus and trusted him as Savior and King. Say that person dies today, even. While that person's body remains on earth, in whatever state it ends up being in, their soul immediately goes to be with Jesus. If you remember from last week, we referenced 1 Thessalonians 4 and talked about how there will be a time which could happen at any moment since nothing else prophecy-wise needs to happen before when Jesus will partially return with all the souls he's been keeping safe with him all this time, resurrect all the bodies of those who had put their faith in him before they died, reunite these souls he brought with him with with these he resurrected, changed and glorified bodies, and then take them back to be with him in heaven, to be with him forever. He reunites these souls with resurrected, glorified, changed and perfected bodies, and then takes them all to be with him forever. Those believers still alive will also be caught up, meet Jesus in the air, and also be given changed and glorified bodies as well. This event is known in end times theology as the rapture. Now, we will be judged according to verse 29 of this morning's passage. But how? Romans 8.1 tells us this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. None. So there is no judgment to, to condemnation or the second death or hell for the believer in Jesus. They've already been saved from that condemnation. So how will believers be judged and for what purpose? Jesus already clued us in a little bit in verse 29 that we will be judged for our deeds. We will be saved from the second death, but we will have to stand before Jesus one day and be judged for our words and actions while in these bodies. 1 Corinthians 3 reveals a little bit more about this. Whether or not the actions and words that we said or did in our bodies were for God's glory or our own selfishness. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. This is symbolic, by the way. Gold, silver, jewels, or wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved. Remember, no condemnation. But it's like you barely escaped through a wall of flames. In addition to wanting to live to bring glory to God, this is even further motivation here. We will stand before Jesus on our judgment day, and while we don't have to worry about our eternal destination, we will either reap immeasurable reward straight from Jesus on that day, or we'll feel like we just escaped this judgment by the skin of our teeth. I don't know about you. But I would much rather look forward to reward from Jesus' hand than that feeling. 
Following this judgment, after the seven-year great tribulational period raging on earth has ended with the battle of Armageddon, and Jesus has set up his earthly rule for a thousand years, known as the millennial kingdom, Revelation tells us this about this first resurrection of believers in Jesus at the rapture. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first, keep that in mind, first resurrection. For them, the second death, or hell, holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. This first resurrection includes us believers who are raptured when Jesus comes back for us and those who became believers after the rapture and endured the tribulational period. We're all included in this first resurrection and thus all included in participation in Christ's future earthly millennial kingdom. Following that, since the Bible promises that we will always be with Jesus in this entire time uh, since he raptured us, we've been with him, we will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth with God for all of eternity. If you have repented of your sinful state and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for the salvation from that, that's all that you have to look forward to. Now what about those who never see a need to repent and never put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation? Well, this one's a lot simpler. If a first resurrection is referenced, then there's what? A second resurrection. As Jesus says in verse 29, these will be resurrected too but resurrected to a resurrection of judgment of condemnation. This is the judgment of condemnation that believers escape for their faith in Jesus, for their salvation. When a person who rejected Jesus and his salvation all the way up to their last breath on earth dies, their body too stays on earth just like the believer's body. But whereas a believer's soul immediately goes into God's presence, the unbeliever's soul immediately goes to a place of torment known in the New Testament as Hades. Jesus references Hades in his parable of the rich man and the poor man named Lazarus in Luke 16. In that parable, both men died. Whereas Lazarus, who loved God and looked forward to his coming deliverer, goes to the presence of God, known as paradise or Abraham's bosom, the rich man, who cared nothing about God, goes to Hades or hell, a place of unspeakable physical and emotional torment. That is where that soul continues to exist until the end of everything having to do with end times. And when all of that is over, then the sea gives up the dead who are in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who are in them, and they were judged too, each of them according to their deeds. Again, what is manifested from a life of constant rejection of Jesus. So at the end, the souls that have been in Hades all this time will also be reunited with their resurrected bodies, but resurrected bodies for another fate. 
This is the second resurrection that only leads to the second death. Remember, the deeds are not the point. The deeds, whether good for the believer or evil for the unbeliever, are merely the manifestation of the measure of that life. Because really what it all comes down to is this. What it all comes down to is whether or not your name is found in what's called the Lamb's Book of Life. If you trusted Jesus for your salvation, your name is in it. If not, your name is not in it. It's very simple, and it's as simple as that. And if your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, anyone whose name was not found recorded in the Book of Life was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the ultimate final place for the resurrected bodies of those who rejected Jesus for their salvation and the ultimate place of physical and emotional torment also for eternity. It's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? But it is the non-watered-down truth. I hope we've all seen that everything is really quite simple. We as humans like to complicate everything, but everything is really quite simple. There will be two resurrections, a first resurrection and a second resurrection. And everyone who has ever existed will be a part of one of them. My question to all of you is this. Sometimes I ask multiple questions at the end of a sermon, but today I only have one question. Which resurrection will you be a part of? Which resurrection will you be a part of? The first one to eternal joy or the second one to eternal torment? Both resurrections are based on what we do with the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus now. When you die, it's too late. So if you have not repented and taken Jesus as your Savior and King, do so right now. If you have, let the spiritual resurrection become all of who you are as you await your physical resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a very powerful passage. I mean, every passage in your word is powerful. But especially in a world where nobody wants to offend anybody, and even some go so far as to say there is no hell. This is the non-watered-down, pure truth, straight from your word. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who's been running their entire life, or if they're watching this or listening to this online later, and they've been running their entire life, running away from you, I pray that as you have been coming after them their whole lives, they'll finally stop and turn towards you. Lord, we have no clue when these earthly lives will end. We know you do. And for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in you for our salvation, we know that you hold us in the palm of your hand. And that there will be a day when the souls that go to be with you, you will bring back with you and reunite with resurrected, glorified bodies. And we look forward to that with great anticipation. And I pray that for all those who constantly reject you as their savior and king this would be a warning for them to finally get their lives right with you this is not something to mess around with this is our eternal fates we're talking about 
Lord, I pray that your power would go forth, hearts would be changed. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.